0: Christianity is deeply serious about love. In fact, the critique that wounds a believer the most by non-Christians is, you're not loving. You'll never hear that critique of Muslims or Hindus. Why? There are no expectations of any of these that they would be loving. But even the most hardened unbeliever knows that the Christian must be characterized by love. It's the clearest distinguishing mark of a true believer, especially love for fellow Christians. This morning, we're going to delve deep into the Christian obligation to love fellow believers, and along the way, we'll define love and we'll make several applications to you. We've been on a several-week hiatus from our consecutive exposition of Peter's epistles but we rejoin the text today at a perfect spot an always relevant issue the necessity of believers to love each other and today we're going to hear from the word of God two distinct actions that will characterize the true regenerate believer in their love for fellow christians Two instructions to help you now with your hearing today. I'm deeply desirous that you hear because this will be an unusual sermon. And so I'm going to ask you to do two things. First is, you will need your Bible open. Because I want you to be convinced not only by hearing the word, but by seeing it. I want the sight of the word to reinforce hearing of the word. But second, I want to make you aware I'm going to do something I rarely, if ever, do, and that is I will make repeated references to the Greek text. Not because I'm a Greek scholar, I'm not, but because the actual vocabulary, the original language is so powerful. The Greek words are so powerful and they hopefully will have a convincing element to them. As we prepare to open this text, let's seek the help of the Lord now. O Sovereign Lord, your word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and your word is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. But we are by nature blind. We desperately need you now to come by the person of the Holy Spirit and illuminate the word. We ask you to enlighten us, giving us a teachable and humble heart, free from pride and worldly wisdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our only Lord. Amen. Look carefully at your text at verse 8. You'll notice that Peter gives an imperative to believers. That is a command. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. When the apostle Peter commands fervent love for fellow believers, he is not saying something unusual. He's already asserted this. In fact, if you just turn backwards in your Bible, two pages probably... He's already asserted this, and I'll bring it to your remembrance in 1 Peter 1.22, where Peter says, since you've been purified, your souls, in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And if you're scratching your head at this point saying, why does Peter re- repeat himself? He said it in 1 Peter 1, verse 22, now he's saying it again in 1 Peter 4.8, because The pedagogical method of the New Testament writers is repetition. That's their method. We should know that by now, that the New Testament writers emphasize the important things. And so that's what Peter is doing. But he stands shoulder to shoulder with the other New Testament apostles in their writing. For example, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, Above all these other things, and he's just named kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. He says, but above all these things, put on love. The apostle John, who's often called the apostle of love, agrees. And he says in 1 John 3, this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. You'll notice that the Lord repeatedly commands us to love fervently specific people, namely, fellow believers. Now I'm not going to give you all the philosophical background because there's a long history here but you've been trained by the world to think that love cannot be commanded. It must arise spontaneously. Thank you Rousseau for teaching us errantly on that one. Sandy and I were watching an old movie the other night one of those I think it's AMC movies it's 70 years old and with the really bad soundtrack and the really bad overacting and the really young Elizabeth Taylor, and the, the handsome leading man and Elizabeth Taylor, the attractive leading woman, right after they meet, they look dreamily in each other's eyes and they say, I've always loved you from the moment I saw you. Rousseau would be very proud of that because that was Rousseau's teaching. And you've been taught, and Hollywood plays on your emotions, it comes through in in pop music. You've been taught that people magically fall in love. In fact, it's even more magical if they fall in love at first sight. And isn't it interesting that people always seem to fall in love at first sight with very attractive people? People don't fall in love at first sight with unattractive people. And so the rest of us in the world who aren't so attractive, we're left thinking, Why do they get to fall in love at first sight? It's bogus. It's all bogus. What the scriptures teach is that love is not an autonomous, self-acting, miraculous thing. Which is supreme. And can decide in a moment's notice who it will love and who not. Because what scriptures teach is God objectively dictates who you must love. Look at the text in verse 8. God commands you. He gives you a command, whether unattractive or attractive, whether old or young, whether of a different socioeconomic group or ethnic group, you must love your fellow believer. You must fall in love with them by command. And just as he sets his love on the unattractive and foolish, we are told in 1 Corinthians 1, God commands us to love these same people, namely his elect. Peter was there that night when Jesus gave the new command. Keep one finger here and look back to John 13 and I want you to be reminded of this new commandment that Jesus gives. The new commandment is given in John 13 where Jesus commands his disciples in the upper room to love fellow believers. Look at John 13, verse 34 and 35. That night, that Thursday night in Jerusalem, Jesus has gathered his 12 disciples. He's gathered them to eat Passover. And Jesus begins the night by disrobing, kneeling in front of each one of them. And as a lowly servant, he's washed the feet of his disciples. He then predicts that one of them will be his betrayer. As soon as Jesus makes that prophecy, Judas, the betrayer, rushes out into the night on his demonic errand as soon as jesus as judas is gone now jesus can speak to the 11 remaining and he can speak only to them because they're all believers they're regenerate men and look at what he says in john 13 verse 34 a new commandment i give to you love one another as i have loved you that you also love one another by this will all men know you're my disciples if you have love for one another in case any of the disciples weren't listening. Turn the page to John 15. Jesus repeats this command. As I said, the pedagogical method of the New Testament is repetition. He repeats it two more times. Now, I will tell you, most of us, and my sinful flesh is just like yours, most of us resent being told things a second time, and especially a third time. Do you think it rankled any of the disciples that night when Jesus says it again in John 15, 12? Love one another. Do you think it really got under the skin of some of the believers when he said it a third time within the span of an hour in John 15, 17? By the way, love one another. Why? Why must we love the brethren? Why is this such an important command? Not because they're our ethnicity. Not because they have the same academic attainment as us. Not because they're the same language group or political affiliation with us. We must love them because we are always commanded to love what God loves and hate what God hates. We must love them because the triune God has set his affection on them from before the foundation of the world. We love them because they too have the indwelling spirit of God. We love them too because they believe the gospel. We love them too because they live for the glory of God and are walking by faith. We love them because we see them being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Now let me remind you what love is. If you've never thought to make a definition of love, here's a decent one. It's not the last word, it's barely a first word, but it's at least a word. Love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, which causes us to labor for the temporal and eternal good of other believers and to promote their welfare above our own. Love, of course, is always, is always, it's cheap and it's worthless unless it is sacrificial. John writes in 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. When was the last thing you did anything, sacrificed anything, for the people in this room love is always sacrificial love is never talk or sentiment or emotion love is action that's why john says again in first john 3 let us not love in word or tongue but in deed and truth so look back to our text in first peter 4 8 this is the second time in his epistle peter has commanded that our love for fellow believers be fervent Now I'm going to start rolling out the Greek terms for you. What does fervent mean? I doubt that you've used the word fervent in the last seven days. I bet you haven't. Fervent here is the Greek word ektinous, which means stretched out, extended to the fullest. Ektinous was used to describe sprinters in the Olympic Games whose legs were fully extended while sprinting. And so when Peter says, love one another fervently, he's saying fervent love is love that stretches out to serve others, that extends themselves to the furthest extent. Peter goes now, and now comes the part that's going to trouble you. Peter goes now and describes two actions that demonstrate fervent love. Peter doesn't let you get away with saying, oh, I just love those people at Woodruff Road. they just give me the warmest feeling. Peter would immediately say, how do you love them? How? Because love isn't a gushy feeling in the pit of your stomach. Love is an action. And so Peter gives you two actions, two proofs that you're actually a believer, that you have genuine love. And I hope as I discuss these two actions that you'll be looking in the mirror of Scripture and asking yourself, do I ever see these two actions in my own life? Those two actions are, <clears throat> write them down, stare at them. These two actions are covering the sins of fellow believers. In fact, Peter gives a quantitative Dimension to this, covering a multitude of sins of fellow believers. And secondly, exercising hospitality without grumbling, grouchy free hospitality with fellow believers. Let's look at both of those in succession. The first is covering a multitude of sins. Look at verse 8 carefully. Now stare at the text. It's very clear. In fact, it's actually too clear for most of us. We're talking about sins. It's the Greek word, another Greek lesson, hamartion. It's the the normal word for sin, transgressions of the law of God. Peter says, this is what fervent love looks like, covering a multitude of sins. We're not talking about social faux pas. We're talking about sin against you. And notice, we're not talking about a one-time thing. Look at what Peter does. He digs his hole deeper. We're talking about a multitude of sins. And he uses the word, I told you, I gave you fair warning about the Greek lesson. He uses the Greek word here, plethos. So when he says that we must cover a multitude of sins, he uses the word plethos from which we get our English word plethora. This covering of sins is not a one-time event. We're talking about covering it repeatedly. And this is one of the New Testament texts where you have to learn the options you have when a believer sins against you. When a believer sins against you, you only have two choices. Here they are. There's not a third or a fourth or a fifth. Here there are the two options. You can cover that sin in love And we're going to talk about the occasions for that momentarily. Or you can confront. Using the guidelines of Matthew 18, calling them to repentance. That's it. Right now as you're thinking about, you're looking across the room right now and you're thinking, I've got a bone to pick with that guy. Well, your two options are, you can cover it in love. Or you can confront. There is no other option. You can't gossip. You can't come to the prayer meeting this Wednesday night and say, Would y'all pray for this brother he's been sinning against me? Pray that the Lord would change his heart and he'd repent. Will everybody pray for me? Carl, would you put that in the prayer guide, please? You don't have that option. Cover or confront one-on-one. Peter is well aware that there are some sins that must be dealt with, with confrontation. But you also know that there are hundreds of things. I gotta just tell you as an aside, I would hate to be your husband or your dad or your son if you felt the need to confront every sin. That would be hell on earth to live with. But there are hundreds of things that people say and do that are offensive, selfish, prideful, and they can be. No, they must be simply covered in love. Look at the quantity that Peter demands a multitude. To cover offenses means this, so that there's no confusion. The Greek words that are used means to let it go or overlook it. And it's referred to, oddly enough, mostly in Proverbs. The writer of Proverbs, in giving wisdom for living, repeatedly tells you there are wise times to overlook a transgression. For example, in Proverbs 19, Solomon says, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. So listen carefully now. I hope you're saying, Carl, could you give me some help here? I need, a, I need some guidelines to help me know when to confront and when to cover. One of the main questions asked when considering scripture's teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation is, when do I cover an offense in love and when do I confront? Well, let me give you three times to, co- to cover and three times to confront. These are basic principles that tell you when it may be best to cover an offense in love, and three more when confrontation may be necessary. When to cover? First of all, when motives can't be easily discerned. Often in conflicts, we struggle with assuming. We think we know another person's motives. But because our hearts are so often deceived, such an approach can lead us astray, only furthering the conflict. When a person's motivation is not easily discerned, Covering a perceived offense is probably a wise way to model biblical love. If you're unsure of a person's motivations, cover their offense wherever possible. Extend grace, wait with patience, pray for insight, and strive to love them as Christ does. A second time when you should cover. When their actions are out of character for them. Several months ago, I had a brother who is very punctual. He's very respectful of others' time we've gotten together i can't tell you how many times over the last decade or so and we had a specific meeting time set up noon came i began to look at my watch 12:08 came still wasn't there and finally he came in the door at 12:14 but during those 14 minutes from 12 to 12:14 i thought you know, this brother's never been late before. He's very scrupulous in respecting my time. And so it probably isn't worth confronting him the second he walks in the door. And sure enough, as he walked in the door, he said, I had a flat tire. I'm so sorry for being late. That's a good time to to not confront, but to cover when somebody's actions are out of character for them. A third time when it's probably wise to cover is when complicating factors are shaping their behavior. This is the person who's struggling with illness or fatigue or weakness. And because our our bodies can influence our hearts, such conditions can influence the way we speak or act. So this is that person who, they're normally not angry or bitter or despairing, but they are right now. Because they're dealing with some aspect of chronic pain or hurt. It's probably wise to cover But of course, there are those right occasions when the right action is to confront the other person. Jesus says simply in Luke 17, if your brother sins against him, against you, rebuke him. And in all cases, the goal of confrontation is repentance and restoration. So let me tell you three times when you ought to not cover, but confront. First of all, when the sinfulness, the wickedness of another's behavior is clear. That person who's rampantly gossiping. Slandering, dividing, hateful speech, drunkenness, sexual sin, you need to confront. A second time to confront is when there is a pattern of sin. When a person's behavior may not be severe, but it's nonetheless consistent enough that confrontation becomes necessary. Patterns of discontentedness, grumbling, anger, complaining. A third time to confront when the person's behavior is harming themselves or others. Sinful behavior and lifestyle such as addiction, substance abuse, abusing others. Other situations where real harm is coming both to those who perpetrate such uh, actions and those affected by them. You should confront. But Peter is saying that when you do cover sin, look back at our text, 1 Peter 4.8. When you do cover sin that is a prime example of love. And the word he uses there is agape. Covering the sins, a multitude of them, of other believers, is a prime example of agape. Again, the sins being covered here are the sins of fellow Christians. Not your own sins and not those outside the church, but the failure of fellow believers to not live up to the path of righteousness. This covering idea, this isn't a one-time text, it's mentioned frequently in the scriptures. Think of how many synonyms Paul uses for it in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's describing Christian love. And listen to what he says Love suffers long, that means covering sin. Love bears all things, covering sin. Love endures all things. All of these are sayings that mean that love does not confront every possible offense. Again, I would hate to live with you if you confront every sin from your wife, from your children, from your neighbor. It's wisdom. That's why I gave you the three distinct guidelines. Wisdom knows when to cover and when to confront. The second way that fervent love is shown. Look again at your text in 1 Peter 4 9. And again... If you were to be stopped on the street and somebody says, how do you know that somebody's a loving Christian? They hug everybody who walks in the door. Did you know that the New Testament never tells us that huggers are those people who are great Christian lovers? But it does tell us that people who cover a multitude of sins have fervent love. It does tell us that those who are hospitable have fervent love. So look at this hospitality. Look at verse 9. Not only does Peter tell us this hospitality is, is the welcoming of strangers, but it has a distinct moral component. It is done without grumbling. And this is speaking to those who says, oh, My husband did it again. He invited people home for lunch, and and he knows that I don't have anything ready, and I'm going to have to, I don't know, tear down the kitchen to, to make lunch for these people, and these people's kids are a little noisy and. Raw, 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 raw. This is what Peter is commanding against what he's commanding is a specific kind of hospitality. Joyful hospitality. Now he uses here the Greek word philozenia. Philo from love, strangers, xenia. That's why this rules out. You can't say, by the way, I'm all for having friends over. Invite Cindy and I over. We love that. We'll invite you over too. We're your friends but that's not hospitality. It's just having your friends over. We enjoyed that, but that's not what's meant here. The Greek word philozenia means love of strangers. This is the opposite of xenophobia, which is the fear of strangers, which some of you may have. Philosenia is the exact same word employed by the writer of Hebrews when he states, describing the incident with Abraham in Genesis 18, when he says, "Let us not forget to entertain strangers, Philozenia, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels." that's a historic reference to Genesis 18. But this isn't an odd thing, because the scriptures everywhere command us to be, for example, in Romans 12, Paul says that the believer is to be given to hospitality. Even back in the Old Testament law, Old Covenant believers who didn't even have the New Testament knew this. They were commanded in Leviticus 19. If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers once in the land of Egypt. Of course, you can remember just a few moments ago when we looked at Genesis 18... When Abraham was that model, hospitable gentleman, when he sees three men walking towards him, we're told that he ran to them. He pursued them for hospitality. He was zealous to be hospitable. He invited them into his home. He freshened up. He brought water for their feet to be washed. He fed them. If you read the text carefully, he got his whole family involved. And he stood by and waited on them as they ate. Lack of hospitality is a serious offense. In fact, it gives me a deep sense of dread to say this. There are people sitting under the sound of my voice right now who will hear these words from Jesus on the last day. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, as the judge, he will point out several evidences that prove that a person is either regenerate or unregenerate. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that he will look to the believers, the sheep on his right hand, and he will say to them, I was a stranger and you took me in. That's the evidence of a converted heart. But then he tells us he'll look to the goats on his left and say, I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Lack of hospitality, obviously, is a wicked thing. The practice of hospitality indicates maturity and godliness. We've begun the practice. We concluded our nominations last week. And now for the next five months, those men who are nominated for the office of elder or deacon will be going through training. We had our first session on Wednesday night. Pray for us. We'll have 18 sessions. So if you see people here late on Wednesday nights, that's those men who've been nominated for office. But one of the clear qualifications... For a man to be an elder, we're told in 1 Timothy 3, 2 is, he must be given to hospitality. Even Lydia, the newest believer, the brand new believer, she's had the indwelling Holy Spirit for about 10 minutes in Acts 16. She invites the apostles back to her house. This shows, don't say to me, Well, Carl, I'll exercise hospitality when I'm mature. You know, when I'm old like you. Or when I I really have gone through lots of discipleship courses. Lydia started exercising hospitality about 10 minutes after she's regenerated. This isn't something that takes great maturity. It just means walking up to someone you don't know and saying, come over for lunch, I'd like to get to know you. There you go. That's the extent of it. Why be hospitable? Well, first of all, because it's godly. God prepares a table for us in the wilderness, we're told in Psalm 23. Hospitality embodies Christ-like servanthood. Hospitality puts the needs of others above your own. How to do it? I just referenced this. How to do it? Here, this is what's going to be a short list. Invite strangers. Remember, the word is philosenia, love of strangers, not just your friends. When they walk in your house, be their servant. It's interesting, one of the most scathing rebukes He's in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's home and he rebukes them for poor hospitality. He rebukes them because they should know better. They have the Old Testament law. He rebukes them and says, you didn't wash my feet, meaning you didn't allow me to clean up. You didn't anoint my head. Perfume on the head was a sign of friendship. You didn't give a kiss of greeting. These are all good insights on what you should do. But the key instruction on how to do hospitality is do it to the glory of God. Aren't we told in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Obviously, hospitality, though mundane, can be done to exalt God. So let me ask you some questions for self-examination. Which strangers did you greet last Sunday? Let me broaden the category. Which strangers did you greet last month? Okay, last month was December. It was an odd month. Which strangers did you greet last year? Which strangers have you invited home to share a meal with in the last year? When was the last time you obeyed the, com- the command of 1 Peter 4, 9 to be hospitable without complaint? What is it that keeps you from this command? Laziness? stinginess, lack of planning for the Lord's day, pride, oh, what would they think of my house? Let me ask you now, look back to our text in verse 8 and 9. The command is to love the brethren with a fervent love. How do you love the brethren? Do you love them by covering their sins, a multitude of sins, Or do you chalk up every offense and confront it or hold it like a grudge? Let me ask you again. Why does our Father want you to be hospitable? Because the gospel is all about God's gracious hospitality towards us. Weren't we strangers to his covenant? That's what Paul calls us in Ephesians 2. He said, you and I were strangers to the covenant but God has invited us to sit at his table. How then could we, those whom God has shown such extraordinary hospitality, how could we who were strangers and have been welcomed into the household of faith, how could we refuse hospitality to others? Our churches should not be as many alleged, should not be xenophobic, fearful of strangers, but by God's grace should be known for their warmth and welcoming kindness to strangers. Your obedience to Jesus' new command to love one another fervently can be seen in these two simple actions. The regular covering of a multitude of sins of the people in this room right now. And second, the regular, joyful, without grumbling, reaching out to strangers, welcoming them, serving them for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the simplicity and clarity of your word. Lord, where we've been convicted today, give us grace to repent, to mortify a narrow spirit that demands that everything against us must be immediately repented of. Lord, we hear the difficulty of this word to cover a multitude of sins in love. Lord, give us grace and wisdom and discernment about how to know when to do that. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive our laziness, our stinginess, our selfishness in being inhospitable. And that even today, it would be our great delight to reach out to brothers and sisters whom we have not yet known, sharing our lives and homes and our meals with them. Lord, deepen our love for one another in this congregation.